On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. Nothing is helping me more right now as I watch human tragedies unfold on the U.S.-Mexican border and elsewhere than a conversation I had last year with literary historian Lindsay Stonebridge on thinking and friendship in dark times. She applies the moral clarity of the 20th century philosopher Hannah Arendt to now, an invitation to dwell on the human essence of events we analyze as political and economic. Our dramas of exile and displacement are existential, she says, about who we will all be as people and political community. What Arendt called the banality of evil was at root an inability to hear another voice. I think she might say very politely, I did tell you. (laughs) And I think, um, for me, the so-called refugee crisis is actually part of a continuous history that Arendt gives us the tools to understand, partly because of her thinking and partly because she lived it. She was an enemy alien, as we said. She was an enemy alien. She was a refugee. She was stateless for 18 years of her life. She said, you know, the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Hannah Arendt, a German-Jewish philosopher, journalist, and political theorist, was born in 1906 and died in 1975. She fled Germany with the rise of Adolf Hitler and ultimately became a U.S. citizen. Lindsay Stonebridge teaches modern literature and history at the University of East Anglia, but she was in southern France when we spoke. Are you on sabbatical? No. Um, we have a slightly longer um, Easter vac vacation okay. mm-hmm. in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I spend as much time as I can down here because I have family here okay. and we have a house here. Mm-hmm. And it's where I get to write and think. Okay. I'm also about an hour away from where Hannah Arendt was in um, a detention camp in Gers. Oh, really? So every time I'm around here, I always have a moment where I think about that. Mm. Um, And think about the people who came through Montauban, which is about an hour from here, which is a big refugee town, and Toulouse. Mm. So this area has got lots of Arendt in it um, in some ways for me. I wanted to ask you, and I... You know, what in the background of your life inclined you to be captured by her passions and ideas? Um, Are there points of resonance that go back for you as well? Yeah, I think it took me a long time to come to Arendt. Because when I first read her as an undergraduate, and we all read The Origins of Totalitarianism, and it seemed like history. And it wasn't until the end of the Cold War, when I started working on a book called The Judicial Imagination. And in that book, I wanted to understand how people judged the Holocaust, how people judged what had happened in World War II. And it was a sense of um, moral and historical clarity that she had. I was thinking about this this morning with the other figure who's very important to me, who's also a very strong Jewish woman, was Melanie Klein, the um, psychoanalyst. Mm. And Klein had a question, which was, "Where where does evil come from? And Hannah Arendt asked another question, which I think is uniquely important, which is how in modern times is evil organized? Mm -hmm. Because we can't stop where evil comes from, but we can talk about 
how it's organised. We can try and understand that. So there's that. There's also, she, she was very committed to the idea that, you know, people who felt like they were outsiders and spectators in their worlds could have a contribution to make to that world, could understand that world from a certain perspective and could engage with it. And actually, you know, all being a pariah, being that you know you're coming from the outside, you know you're not quite right, and seizing that and running with it and working with it. And she, and she also had that angle for mm. me. I think, you know, just for me rereading The Origins of Totalitarianism, dipping back into her um, after quite a few years, that she wasn't just that these this is not a historical it's not history telling it's really a delving into the human essence of what we experience and analyze as as political mm. historical events but something that struck me so much that i'd forgotten um is this idea about the isolation of like that she wrote what prepares men for totalitarian denomination and here again is what happens in the human heart and psyche and society that makes these things possible is the fact that loneliness once a borderline experience usually suffered in certain marginal social conditions like old age has become an everyday experience of the ever-growing masses of our century and if i think mm. about the brexit experience in the uk and I think about this last presidential election in the U.S., so much of the dynamic were, the, were human beings who had felt unseen and feel disconnected. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that language she says, atomized, isolated individuals. Yeah. And she makes a further distinction in the last chapter of Origins of Totalitarianism, which she wrote later, mm-hmm. between uprootedness, which is what people... Which, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, this has happened, but obviously it's got worse. And in periods of economic crisis, it, it, it gets far worse, is not, not feeling recognized, not feeling at home. So there's a kind of malaise of uprootedness. Yeah. And she contrasts and compares with superfluousness, yeah. which is not being treated like you're in the world at all. And that was the camps. <laughs> And that is the refugee camp. So there's this, 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 this awful relationship between the uprooted of the world um, in Europe, in mm-hmm, the States, mm-hmm. and the new superfluous of the world, which she understood very well, because mm-hmm. she was one of the superfluous of the world in the 1940s. Right. Um, so I think she was very interested in, the, in, in, in that relationship. And I think you're absolutely right. The loneliness is absolutely crucial, but it's you know, the question of how we imagine a response to that. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I think it's very interesting. I've discovered recently that Hannah Arendt taught George Orwell's 1984 to Berkeley undergraduates in 1955. <laughs> and Another new bestseller. <laughs> which, you know, wouldn't, would, yeah, exactly. Another right. new... And would, what would one give to have been in that classroom? <laughs> Any of your listeners were in Berkeley in 1955 right. being taught 1984 by Hannah Arendt. I yeah. would love to hear. Yeah. Um, and she had read... I think she'd read the novel earlier because she started rewriting the last chapter of Origins of Totalitarianism. So she's getting that kind of analysis of, of, of Orwell. She's in dialogue with Orwell, who's, of course, dead by then. And he's saying, actually, this is what happens. The, the, the original title of 1984 was The Last Man in Europe. I and mean, if you can hear the Brexit resonances there, yeah. Yeah. The Last Man in Europe. Yeah. Um, and the loneliness. And the reason why um, Winston Smith is so drawn to Big Brother in the end is he cannot bear being alone. And I think you're absolutely right. Listening to that that come cri de coeur, that 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 cry of the heart around not having a place to go, 
Yeah. But on the, on the other hand, she would, you know, she would have been, I think, very cautious of having too ready answers to what you do with that dilemma. Right. I mean, she'd right. been very, very suspicious of throwing up another worldview or ideology to end the loneliness. Or, or very, I think she'd be very impatient with the way that those of us who are trying to react to our current um, scenarios, both in the UK and the US, are either turning on each other or blaming the liberal elite or blaming high capitalism or blaming whatever. Making people unlonely is a good project, but how that's going to happen, what politics you need for right. that to happen is going to be a very, very hard question. Right. Or even if politics is the place where that would start, if it would be a political project, which is a different kind of question to raise in the 21st century than it was in the 20th century. Absolutely. And I mean, that is something yeah. I wanted to ask you also, because she had this insistence that people should be more political, which meant one thing mm -hmm. for her. And, and maybe this is a way in which the foundation on which that idea was based in her century is so different. I mean, because politics itself um, is called into question in a different way as part yeah. of our crisis. Yeah. No, I was very interested about your question about imagination, because I think we yeah. talk about, we talk a lot today about empathy and suffering. Mm -hmm. And I'm like Arendt, I'm, I'm always a bit um, wary. It sounds like a terrible thing to say. I'm really a bit wary about empathy. <laughs> I really don't well, know about I, wa this. I wanted to ask you about that, because when we talk, you know, when we talk about talking about loneliness... As we're discussing it in the context of her work, I mean, it's 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 clearly the human condition and it can be a personal experience. Yeah. But sh th it's not yeah. talking about loneliness as something that, you know, if we can be compassionate towards each other's loneliness, things will get better. Well, I think for her, I mean, she was, she was critical of pity and she wrote, she wrote very famously in her own revolution book mm -hmm. that what she didn't like about pity is it kept the power relationship. You know, people's, other people's suffering, for the one who's doing the pitying or the empathising, keeps the power, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And also she didn't like it because once you, once you have suffering as your ground zero, you can allow for anything in the name to end that suffering. And that was the tragedy for her of the French Revolution. You know, we have to be piteous in order to, you know, um, save the suffering people. And she's thinking about what it's like to imagine not being in the place you're in, to be imagined to be in the place of another. And that's slightly different from pity. And it's a slightly right. different take from empathy because it in involves something a bit harder, actually. <laughs> um, so when she's teaching to Berkeley students in 1955, she says, imagine what it, what it was like to have the political experience of a European, which is an experience totally unlike yours. And then she puts in brackets, a bit like mine, but totally unlike yours. <laughs> right. and, which I thought was very sweet given that you know, given what she'd just been through. Yeah. And I think it's it's that it's that kind of and what you Kant teaches us to do is not just to empathize, but which is actually to build blueprints or worlds or um, frames for understanding experience that is not ours, that cannot be incorporated into ours. So why I think it's different from empathy or pity is when you're imagining, because you're imagining to be empathetic or to share suffering, you're immediately incorporating that experience into a view of yourself and your own, own mm. worldview. Mm. What Arendt wanted was actually something a bit more radical than that, is to imagine something that's not your world, that, that makes you feel uncomfortable. Mm. And that's where the work has to has to start. And that's why she was also very committed to thinking, <laughs> just right. you know, to the activity of thinking. Yes, um, yes. And which is how you do that. Which is how you do that. Right. And honestly, you know, 
Americans are very have a very conflicted kind of relationship historically and philosophically with thought and ideas. It's a different thing than it was, for example, in the Germany that Hannah Arendt yeah. was raised in, the power of ideas. But it it feels to me like there might be a receptivity now precisely because we see that it's not getting us anywhere to be <laughs> meeting my emotion with your emotion. Her, mm. As you say, you can only have moral imagination if you also think if you are thinking you you yeah. um you talked in that in the this uh podcast i heard you in that brought me to you in our time about how she always talked about the dialogue we have in our heads that we are constantly working out what it means to be human to be a person whether we realize it or not yeah yeah i mean that i mean she took this from socrates and then from heidegger but her sense of what it meant to be a thinking person was always to be having the two-in-one dialogue in your head. That thinking wasn't about mastery. It wasn't about thinking about stuff in order to control it or to rationalise it. Mm-hmm. Thinking was a way of being. It was a way, it was the passion of being was in thinking. And that comes from that two-in-one dialogue in one's head. And for her, that, that, that was the beginning of moral life, comes in that dialogue. That also follows, there is a notion of judgment that comes through thinking and dialogue. Um, and uh, and the, I the ability, discernment, I mean, right? Reflection. Um, well, she'll say, I mean, thinking, she says, is not the same as judgment, but it creates the right conditions mm-hmm. for judgment. But also, she says, if you can't have that inner dialogue, then you can't speak and act with others either because it's part of you know if you if you're already divided in yourself because you're having this conversation with yourself and that's the passion of your being um people who can do that can actually then move on to having conversations with other people and then judging with other people and she's what she called the banality of evil was the inability to hear another voice the inability to have a dialogue either with oneself or the imagination to have a dialogue with the world the moral world I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with literary historian Lindsay Stonebridge, exploring the present-day resonance of the 20th century thinker Hannah Arendt. Arendt coined the phrase the banality of evil in her 1963 book about the Jerusalem trial of Holocaust architect Adolf Eichmann. So one of her famous phrases is the banality of evil, which was an observation she made about Eichmann, and it was controversial. But you said something about the bureaucratization, which was part of that banality, mm-hmm. part of a refuge for, like it was, instead of thinking, you are part of the system yeah. and you follow the rules and you enact the rules. Yeah. You know, and again, not to, I, I really would not compare Eichmann to anyone alive right now in full, but... The revulsion and the sense of alienation people all over the place have from bureaucracy, which in our age is globalized, right? The way the phrase, Mm -hmm. the government, will be received in many places in the U.S., the way the phrase, the EU, is received Mm -hmm. in England. (laughs) There are echoes of, you know, something that goes wrong. There's something that goes wrong in human societies that we're still with us or we're feeling again. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's one of the first things um, Arendt did when she 
finally got to New York, um, one of her first jobs was to help edit Kafka's diaries. You remember the story of the castle, you know, the stranger. It's kind of a, it's a, certainly a migrant story. You know, the stranger arrives in a new place, mm, he comes right. for work, and then he can't work out what's going on and he, he can't settle. And, um, you know, he's blocked by this bureaucracy that no one understands. It sounds like any kind of, anyone who's worked with refugees or, or migrants in the last 10 years will know all too well um, mm. Carr's experience as he tries to, um, you know, make good on the offer of work from the castle. And I think it's very interesting that she she actually chose... That I mean, she chose it you know, because it, it, it resonated with her her experience. But it goes back to the earlier conversation. I suppose you know, the more the more we become fearful of what we call life, the more we try and bureaucratize to keep other people out. Yeah. the worse it gets. And also in, with the kind of um, with the logic that is no logic. I mean, that's the other thing. It's the capricious nature of um, bureaucracy. Um, yeah. I mean, if I think Even about the well-meaning EU, bureaucracy, I mean, t- takes on these yeah. dehumanizing well, this characteristics. Is very in- exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. this is where you know, um, you know, humanitarianism is a very good example of the how. How do we administer for human life? Yeah. And once you start to administer human life, you have very difficult decisions to make. Um, and before you know it, you're in a situation where you're running very close um, to not committing atrocities, but you know, getting very, very close to causing harm rather than doing good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you talk to people who work for big, big aid agencies, you talk to people who've worked and then left big aid, um, this is, you know, if the bureaucratization of human life mm-hmm. brings with it this penalty. Yeah. Even when you think you're doing good, which is why our Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, um, who was trying to explain why Britain would not be taking any more child refugees across from France, um, said, you know, it, it was a bad policy because it encouraged child refugees. And I felt like one of those judges or someone sitting mm-hmm. there in Jerusalem in 1961 thinking, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. You're not helping child refugees because you're, it might encourage more child refugees to come. Really? Is this a moral position? Yeah, um, right, right. No. <laughs> it's an administrative position. And it's one that, you know, I don't think these people are evil, but I think they run very, very close to the wind. <laughs> um, right. And, it, and it, that kind of, at, the best, at best, it's unthinking. At worst, it's cynical. Right, right. I mean, let's, let's talk about refugees. Um, mm-hmm. It's an important topic for you. We, with our news cycle, we we kind of lurch from, you know, one drama to the next of what happened today that's really important, right? What happened today that mattered, yep. and I often like to kind of step back and think somebody looking back a hundred years from now, like looking at this day, what will they see was happening in the world that in fact was important? And I, I feel like this refugee crisis that is so huge and ongoing and unresolved and no vision for resolving or even a sense of what that would mean uh, might be that thing. And I know that's more present in Europe. And I mean, I wonder if you think if Hannah Arendt could <laughs> could come back with her cigarette in hand today, how she might um, ask us to be looking at this thing that is also happening kind of between and above and below and behind all the politics that we're paying attention to. Yeah, yeah. I think I think she might say very politely, I did tell you. Mm. <laughs> and I think um, for me, the so-called refugee crisis is actually part of a continuous history that Arendt gives us the tools to understand, partly because of her her thinking and partly because she lived it. So it's a really right. clear example of her 
Um, she was an enemy thinking. alien, as we said. She was an enemy mm-hmm. alien. She stateless was a refugee. Person. She was stateless for mm-hmm. 18 years of her mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you look, one of my favorite essays from Arendt is an essay she published in 1943 um, for the Menorah Journal called We Refugees. And it's very, very biting. And she understood very well. She said, you know, before the word exile used to be, exiles used to be treated as sort of sacred figures or treated right. with hospitality yeah. in a war. I, I, I read that. That's so interesting to think about. Um, everywhere yeah. the word exile, which once had an undertone of almost sacred awe, now provokes the idea of something simultaneously suspicious and unfortunate. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And that, I mean, she said that, I think she said that in 43 as well. Yeah. Um, and what she's very, very good on is saying, actually, this isn't a problem for refugees. This isn't a refugee crisis. This is a crisis for the European nation state. It's a crisis for what we think we're doing. Okay. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think that really needs to be, um, you know, put firmly, you know, the, ref- the refugee problem isn't just the problem for people who happen to be refugees. It's a problem for everybody because it's a problem about how we're deciding um, to run our countries and our politics. Mm-hmm. Why I think she's very, very good today um, is she understood that humanitarianism or human rights would not be the answer to hmm. um, the question that was posed by people who, for whatever reason, found themselves outside the nation state. And she, one of the, one of the first things she, she pointed out is that what was exposed by the refugee crisis of the last century um, was how so-called human rights were actually political and national rights. So you were only, you only had as many rights as were guarded by the country in which you happened to be born. Once that country decided to de-citizenize you, once it decided that you were no longer a citizen, once it decided that it had no more responsibilities towards you, um, you were rightless. She said, you know, the world, she said very famously, the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. Yeah. Um, the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. Yeah. So the, then the question is, well, okay, so how are we going to have a political community that um, is hospitable, that is going to work um, in terms of protecting rights? And one thing, you know, she said after the war, refugees themselves didn't tend to call for human rights. They tended to call for their own nation. For, they called for what? Their own nation. Their own nation. Yes. You know, because yes. people know yeah, that right. you want to be protected. And that's going to be realized. such a different set of questions again in the 21st it's, century. It's just not it is. the proposal anyone would yeah. make. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Um, but she did, and she, I think she was very, she would have predicted she, that um, she had this expression, and you'll remember because you've read it recently in The Origins of Totalitarianism, called the dark background of difference, where you no longer have entitlements or presence, um, you no longer have rights, is you disappear into the dark background of difference, where she said the more interconnected the world gets, the more global it gets, the bigger the dark background of difference is going to get. Right. And therefore the more threatened, yeah. you know, the more threatened people who are, you know, consider themselves to be in, in political nation states, the more threatened they're going to be. So you're in this kind of, you know, scenario that, that, that is like a zero-sum game. Um and so that is that is where we are, and it's interesting. I mean, it's terribly, inter- you know, interesting in a terrible way. I think that with globalization, um, which is not necessarily a word she would have used or predicted, but with globalization, there was this assumption, um, which actually didn't rest on a very sophisticated examination of the human condition, but there was this assumption that we would just grow out of that, right? But what yeah. she understood, because she was looking at the human condition 
and taking that seriously is, as you say, that dark background, that this would become a crisis again. Yeah. Yeah. And she was also, I mean, she did, if you read The Human Condition, which is, I mean, I recommend to cheer you up, actually, in these dark, dark times. I have not read that one. It is is a model of, you know, she'll talk about the importance of new beginnings, the importance of natality, Mm. the importance of action, the importance of speaking. And she'll talk about, you know, the world... You know, she talk about the. I mean, it's a very. It's a book that's concerned with worldliness, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and she'll talk about the storybook of mankind. Like we're all connected, and we're all part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but she says, you, the more you know, globalization is about the accumulation of capital. It's expansion for expansion's sake. The, so it will not produce more equality. It will produce more inequality. Hence the background of difference. So trying to work for a, a worldliness that's genuinely worldly as against a worldliness which is actually about accumulation, expansion for expansion's sake, which will increase um, increase the divides between people. Mm. Um, she, she would have understood that. I mean, if she, if she would have been so impolite to say, I told you so, she, I don't think she would have done. <laughs> she would have been thinking it. Listen again and share this conversation with Lindsay Stonebridge through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with literary historian Lindsay Stonebridge, exploring how the 20th century philosopher and political theorist Hannah Arendt might speak to us now. Arendt famously coined the phrase the banality of evil and wrote towering works like The Human Condition and The Origins of Totalitarianism. She was concerned with the human essence of events that we analyze as historical and political. Arendt was a German Jew who fled the Holocaust and spent 18 years as a refugee, a stateless person, before eventually becoming a U.S. citizen. Before we kind of leave the refugee crisis behind, I Obviously, we're not going to come up with a game plan right here. And, you know, could we say what Hannah Arendt, perhaps, maybe you can, what she would direct us to do right now. I I just want to underscore a point you make in your writing, that we need to be pondering this. And we need to Mm -hmm. be having a kind of conversation, including that inner conversation. I mean, you say, and you're channeling Arendt, when you have a refugee crisis, what you also have is a political, existential, and moral crisis about what a country is and who its citizens are. And you also yeah. point out that possibly the reason this makes us panic is because what it puts before our eyes is, as you say, that you know if human rights are contingent, <laughs> that we in fact are all vulnerable. And of course, that is yes. a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying specter. But yeah. then we retreat, we respond to that vulnerability in a way that is punitive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and if you stop to, th- I mean, I do think there's a lot of truth in that vulnerability. Because if you stop to think about it um, with refugees, when you're a refugee, you become a refugee 
just where you happen to be born and when you happen to be born. That's it. <laughs> that right. It's, it's right. the accident of birth. Right. It's the accident of birth that you know makes you either American or European or British or English as well. So it is purely contingent. And I think there's something about that that people really do find um, threatening. So that's why we get people sort of, you know, somehow imagining where they happen to be born entitles them to more yeah. than someone else who happens yeah. to have been born somewhere else. And when you, when you stop, I mean, in The Human Condition, uh, Rent borrows um, a phrase which she takes from um, Herodotus called isonomia, which is the principle of equal liberty. And she says you need to have a political community um, which um, is capable of responding to isonomia or this principle of equal liberty. And it's and basically the principle of equal liberty says, well, how come I've got total freedom of movement and you haven't? Mm-hmm. How come, you know, my child gets a really good education and yours doesn't? How come my mum can grow vegetables mm-hmm. in her garden and your mother's garden's just been blown to bits? That's not good enough. And she says, you know, we, we need to have, a, there needs to be enough in, our, in the way we think about um, political democratic life to allow citizens and people to act on the principle of equal liberty. And on the one hand, the situation um, we have now is, is a kind of phobic repudiation of vulnerability, everyone's vulnerability. Right, right, right. Um, which is very, very bad. But on it's the a re- other it's hand... It's a rejection th- of vulnerability, as though it is something it's a we rejection. could reject. Or say, we, will, exactly, we will not be exactly, vulnerable. Exactly. <laughs> we will not be vulnerable. Right. Uh, we, can, right. we can prove this. Right. Um, and on, but on the other hand, I mean, remember, the biggest refugee populations now are not actually in Europe. They're in Jordan. They're in Lebanon. They're in yeah. Turkey. Yeah. Um, they're in communities which quite often are refugee communities themselves. I mean, some of the biggest mm. um, people who've hosted refugees are existing, either Palestinian or Kurdish or the Christian communities in the Middle East, who are literally making space um, for a new generation of refugees. That's not always an easy relationship. I don't want to idealise the local or I don't want to idealise the idea of refugee to refugee humanitarianism because it, it comes with all those difficulties. But it does seem to me that the principle of equal liberty or isonomia is working effectively elsewhere in the world. Um, so it should not be probably on the wit and wisdom yeah, of the rest of yeah. us um, to use a bit more moral imagination because it's it's not as if it's not happening. It is. And it also is happening, um, you know, both in Europe and and in the states, with the you know the people who are what we call the new people, with a new generation of activists. Yeah, I. You said something so important just a minute ago, and I I want to dwell with that a little bit. That so I, you know, there's a danger in invoking somebody like Hannah Arendt. Um, that you know, here we're bringing in this great intellectual, and that somehow that implies mm-hmm. um, abstraction, or right, or that this is not thinking, or even the way she thought about thinking is not for ordinary people. But yeah. what you just said about, you know, her validation of the the actual power and freedom of a human being to keep idea and possibility alive, but yeah. but but her insisting that our that our power to say, I don't want to live this way, you know, I don't want my children to have opportunities that are simply unthinkable for children in that neighborhood over there, and the mm-hmm. the power of putting those questions and those longings. And that kind of insistence out in the world. Mm. Yeah, and I think also um, I do my thinking on the ground, which I think is what you're saying there. Yeah. Is, you know, thinking's not abstraction. It's not just something that happens in the universities or for the liberal right. elite or the co- between the covers of the New Yorker. We're all thinking. We're all doing it all the time. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, but in a concrete way. One thing that you I've heard you say about her thinking that felt very resonant for me is um, 
and also in terms of this equal liberty idea, that, that what we need are vibrant communities that can change without risk, a community that mm-hmm. is okay with promising, mm-hmm. and a culture of forgiveness. Can yeah. you talk about those ideas? Yeah, she says that in, um, in The Human Condition. Okay. Uh, she says the modern life, the human condition, is unpredictable. Since the advent of modernity, um, we've had rapid change. The world has become unpredictable in new ways. So I think she says, you know, for the first time ever, and she's writing this in the late 50s, the pace of technological change has outstripped um, man's ability to adapt to change. Um, so there's a whole set of things that. Have Wait, been, that's uh, more true uh, now uh, than it was then. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah it's just you know, it's just, I mean, if we thought Star Trek looked scary, yeah. um, that's far truer. So a lot of you know, the post-Reformation, we've got the turn to the self. We've got new new technology that's just outpacing our ability to be. We've got a kind of sense of um, the world slipped off its axis. So how does the hu- human condition function? In a world like that, how would anything like a political community help? And she says, well, the two things you need is, on the one hand, the ability to um, make and honour promises. Anyone who's a parent knows how this works. You, yeah. you have to yeah. say, this will happen and it will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I will make sure it happens. Right. And every um, once in a while it won't. Le- but you're saying that that, yeah. that you need that, that needs there needs to be a foundation of that, that we trust There each needs other. to be the faith. Yeah. yeah. Someone who mm-hmm. is going to promise you that this will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order to, you know, keep good on that, you also, and it took me ages to understand this, you did cultural forgiveness. And it took me quite a long time to understand this because I'm not a very naturally forgiving person, if I'm totally honest with myself. So, <laughs> and also my image of Arendt was always like, well, she's kind of really tough. And, yeah. uh, you know, she, you know she, she she talks truth to lots of things. And it wasn't yeah. stuff about forgiveness. It sounds a bit meh. And um, what she means is if, if you're going to have a culture that takes risks, if you're going to embody risks, and if we're going to get to anything like equal liberty or a better, a better political culture, or at least a culture of ideas, you're going to have to take risks. And if you're going to do that, um, you're going to get things wrong. <laughs> and you're mm-hmm. going to make errors. Mm-hmm. And so a mature political community needs the capacity for forgiveness, to accept that, you know, things go wrong. Yeah. Um, people make mistakes. Yeah. Um, and I think that, again, if you if you turn back to your earlier point about the culture in um, Great Britain and the US at the moment, one of the responses to that loneliness is people to want an alternative, which is a fantasy, mm-hmm. where everything will be looked after. Um, we're right. we're going to, you know, we're going to do this and it'll be fine. Right. Um, and so the capacity to have a kind of um, political community based on, well, you know, it's going to be imperfect. Right. I mean, right. the way both right. um, our recent elections were fought, or we're yeah. on, on, on absolutes. Yeah. Um, there are promises so being I thought, made that I mean, can't that's, be kept. Promises yeah. that can't be kept, with, yeah. which yet yeah, on watch and wait. Yeah. Um, but also a kind of um, infantilization of um, electorates, yeah. um, which you know right. goes that we will make uh, we will make the world safe. And you think right. you're kidding? You know, I'm 52 right. years old. I know you're not going to make the world safe. Yeah. Feed me another line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also the um, the culture of forgiveness to me feels very important to put out there. It feels also very countercultural right now. I mean, there's also this hardening yeah. of lines. You know, yeah. Um, you were for that, or you voted for that yeah. candidate, or against yeah. that, or against that candidate, and then there's this whole world of assumptions made about you. And even at the same time that we're very frustrated with people on the other side, whatever the other side is, we will not let them, you know, change. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> we 
the minute anything shifts or there's some kind of conciliatory move made, you know, authentic or not, it's immediately swatted down. I mean, this idea of mm. this idea of, of what did you say? A mature culture of forgiveness um, mm. that means mm. the kind of a pact in the in the middle of our life together that says we we want to change. We will extend some modicum of openness. Yeah, I think it's also a question of where that happens, though, because my yeah. I think in big politics. The cynicism, and it's and it's a cynicism. It's utterly deserved. Yeah. Is I'm not going to play that game because I know you're just playing a game. I just I know this is a game. Um, and when Arendt talks about when she, I think it's one of the most moving passages of Origins of Totalitarianism. She evokes Augustine, who she wrote her dissertation on, and she wrote her dissertation on um, Augustine's notion of love. Um, and you know he he would talk about you know worldly love ap- appetite desire, which is love yeah. of the future, transcendent love, which is the love of God, which is the past. And the love that she was really interested in was neighbourly love, which is neither, you know, neither wanting transcendence nor, nor wanting something or someone. It's just the love that says, I want you to be. And she returns to that um, saying of Augustine, that idea of neighbourly love in the origins of totalitarianism. Um, but she says... That's the kind of love that's available in the dark background of difference. It's not mm. the love that you're going to find on the political stage. Right. It is uh, because that's all you've got in the dark background of difference is neighbourly love and her phrasing. And it's very interesting to me that she doesn't try and find it in you know the political, which was you know right. super known for her. The political theatre was everything to her. Um, but she said no, actually you know love um, that kind of neighbourly love is in the dark. Um, background of difference. And it is, you know, she'll also say, you know, love is something as soon as you bring it into the light of day, um, it, it kind of crumbles in the sunlight, you know, it, it disappears. So I think um, if you were going to say something, if I said to her now, let's have a culture of political forgiveness, and she'd look at me, she'd, she'd say, oh, grow up. <laughs> no. Right. You know, look at these guys. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Um, right. Well, and I would some... say, right. So politics is where it's become a caricature, where we have a caricature of, of, yeah. of the opposite of that, in fact. Um, yeah. Right. So I would never say a political culture of forgiveness because that would not be yeah. reasonable or real, realistic. Yeah. But a culture of forgiveness. We don't need our politicians, do we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, to start yeah, having yeah. No, a I culture, think... to shifting our culture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that will come back to what she says about um, creating a space where you can think. Because once you start having these conversations with yourself and with with others, and once you start imagining yourself in another place, then forgiveness does follow. Mm-hmm. While she was very passionate about education, I think she did. She kind of idealized education in the sense that she'd have liked the kind of great German idea of uh, the Bildung um, to be available to everybody. Which is it's also like it's formation, right? It's not just education. Exactly. That word is formation. Exactly, yeah. it's formation. Yeah. Um, and I think she she was romantic about that, but she was also you know we need spaces where we can think and try these ideas out. Yeah. And you're not going to have anything like even a local community or a political culture of anything like that can keep its promises or forgive right. unless people are allowed to think. And that's the thing about going back to your earlier point about loneliness. Yeah. In order to think, you actually, in a way, you need to be in a, in, a, in, a, in a culture which allows you, which endorses that process of thinking. Yeah. 
home. Yes, and create space for and it. And it, it, it needs to make it a culture that, that kind of makes sense. When I mean, she says yeah. in the, the final late chapter of Origins of Totalitarianism, you know, she's actually she's responding to George Orwell here, and she says, you know, two plus two will never make five. That's not the problem. And, you know, George Orwell, you know, at the end, Winston's being tortured and he's made to say two plus two equals five. And this is like, you know, totalitarianism makes us all lie. She said, that's not the power. It's the fact that in a world where people are going to say it is even though they know it isn't, <laughs> mm. that is deeply estranging. That's what creates those conditions of loneliness and despair. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that for her is the, um, the wickedness of the political lie. People don't believe that two plus two makes five. They don't believe half of what's said. But that we can get ourselves and others to the point where we might say something like that. It's yeah. equivalent of that. Yeah. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with literary historian Lindsay Stonebridge, exploring the present-day resonance of the 20th century thinker Hannah Arendt. going to have to wind down here, but I've got so much else I want to talk about. I want to talk briefly, and this follows on that, I think, of the idea of lying, right? Yeah. Uh, which was a one of those elements of totalitarianism, um, very much a subject alive in American politics now that's, you know. Yeah. yeah. But something I'm very intrigued, getting a little bit deeper into this and reading her and I mean, I've thought a lot about. We already had a cry. I think we did like a lot of things right now. It's just out on the surface what was already kind of fermenting. We already had a crisis of truth, or not mm-hmm. being able to speak about truth in a complex way. And we've been relying on facts, and facts were never yeah. enough. And she yeah. makes these like here's her, her essay, "Lying in Politics." She says that factual truths. Here's that factual truths are never compellingly true. The historian knows how vulnerable is the whole texture of facts in which we spend our daily life. It is always in danger of being perforated by single lies or torn to shreds. Facts need testimony to be remembered and trustworthy domain of human affairs. From this, it follows that no factual statement can ever be beyond doubt. Take take us inside that and what that means for us now. I think... um yeah, I think she's she's for, for Arendt. I think why the idea of thinking and speaking as a form of action are important to her is that what she's saying there is I mean you can throw enough facts, you can throw all the facts you like at people, and they will not stick. And we had this um, in in the UK, and I know you have too. That it's you know, okay against the, against the um, false news. We'll have uh, fact finding, and we'll tell you. Yeah. And we'll have a team of researchers, and you just have to look on our website, and we'll tell you which of those are lies. And you can scream facts at people till you're blue in the face. And a lot of you know colleagues in universities and journalists have been doing exactly that very hard, you know, working tirelessly, and it's not making any difference. And I think what she's talking about there is the ability um, through thinking and communal discourse to make truth meaningful in the world. It has to happen between people, you know? right? Which is not saying we just make up our own reality. She's not saying that. It means that it. You know, this is why when she you know, says testimony, about, it needs it needs testimony. testimony. It needs testimony. experience. It needs he needs yeah. human experience yeah. around it. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and so I think she, she that also why testimony was important to her. It's why history and um, the sense of, um, of myth were all important to her because it's what makes truth meaningful to people together in a community. If you want a culture that's going to um, take on fake news and the political lie, um, I say as a, someone who teaches literature and history, what you need is the culture of the arts and humanities. <laughs> what you need is, is more storytelling. Um, what you need is more discourse. What you need is more imagination. What you need is, is more, more creation in that way. And more of a sense of, you know, what it is that ties us to those words and ties us to those stories. Yeah. Right. We need three-dimensional Right, we need we need stories and facts and 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 conversations between people and all of that working together. Right? It's yeah. I mean, it reminds me very much of um, when Arendt went back to Germany to um, collect the Lessing Prize, which um, she was given, and she gave a speech. And yeah, Lessing was this great, you know, humanist and great believer in dialogue. And one thing she said to her audience, you know, I'm talking to you as, as a Jewish person. Mm -hmm. you, you need to take that on board. And what she said, you know, what, what would not have been helpful um, during the Third Reich um, is um, to say, you know, Jews and Germans are part of the same humanity. We're all, we all love each other. She said, because that would have been to totally disregard the reality that you're living right. in a political system that says that one of you is not. Right. Far better, she says, to say a German and a Jew and France. So you, you acknowledge the reality of the racial politics that is making an idea of shared humanism impossible. Um, but you're maintaining its possibility by acknowledging that reality and doing your stuff in, yeah. in spite of that. And I think that there's something, you know, in in your story and in Arendt's um, story there, which does resonate, is you're, you're, she would have been very suspicious of a false type of humanitarianism that tried to pretend that the politics of um, race weren't violent and horrible yeah. um, and real, and real in ways that are unimaginable for a lot of people. Um, but you acknowledge that and then you say, and still, and still we're going to sit in the studio together and still we're going to read this text together and yeah. still we're going to do this together. And I think so. I think it's something, I mean, the, the kind of... Um, Toughy in me wants to say you stick with that reality. Yeah, you yeah, that, you're right. It was a both end, go. right? But it's it's yeah. it's again yeah. it's thinking. It's a, it's it is allowing the complexity of reality in. Yes, and yes. it's never. Yes. It's always messy. Yeah, you yeah. the the origins of totalitarianism ends with um, these words. It says, "But there remains also the truth that every end in history necessarily contains a new beginning." This beginning is the promise, the only message, in quotes, which the end can never produce. Beginning before it becomes a historical event is the supreme capacity of man. Politically, it is identical with man's freedom. And then she writes, this beginning is guaranteed by each new birth. It is indeed yes. every man. I mean, those are very lofty words and really kind of yes. surprising <laughs> at the end of this book, which is about the darkest depths of humanity. But yeah. I want to just, you reflecting on all of this, um, are talking about, you know, you've just used the word friendship, like, you know, very concrete, mm -hmm. on the ground ways to realize what she said. You know, you, you when you had this scenario that I read earlier, you know, she might conclude saying to us, you'd be best advised and make some new friends so that together you can learn to think without banisters. <laughs> yeah. 
Is that a phrase of hers? Think without banister. Think without banisters is her phrase. Uh-huh. You know, how do you? I mean, she's in response to the, the Holocaust in particular. I mean, how, how once the impossible has been made possible, how do we judge? How do we think? And that that was her motivating question. But her concern with beginnings, or what she called natality. Yeah. Um, I mean, Heidegger was always being towards death. She was always being towards the possibility of of life, and I think it came through in two ways in in her life. One is through friendship, because each new encounter, especially when you're actually out of your bubble. I mean, she's talking about, um, mm. um, which is, you know, when I when I talk, you know, about you know people working refugee to refugee humanitarianism, that, that's that's a difficult kind of friendship. But it's a friendship that has has to work. Mm. But also, uh, when I was looking in her teaching file, which um, really brought home to me. Um, is the importance of for her of her students the importance of the people she called the new people, mm. and I mm. think um, you know I don't think we're ever going to have the education you know the political free education that Arendt dreamed of that formation, but I think that kind of affirmation of teaching of listening to students of empowering students of you know making it impossible for um, students to create the kind of the, the kind of new ideas of citizenship those are things she she believed in very strongly and the mm. older I get and the darker the times get for me and I'm sure, I know a lot of other people who work in universities and schools feel this the place where I see new birth are in my students and I think mm. that is the beginning you know, out of the, the darkest times you know, there can be a new beginning and we need to step back and shut up sometimes and, and, and do the most we can to make sure that happens. Lindsay Stonebridge is a professor of modern literature and history at the University of East Anglia in Norfolk, England. She's the author of The Judicial Imagination, Writing After Nuremberg, as well as a wonderful essay, Thinking Without Bannisters, for the UK's Jewish Quarterly magazine. Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Kasper Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Lillian Vo, Damon Lee, and Jeffrey Basoy. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, supporting academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, visit templeton.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. 
the Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.